1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Hausman. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Nicholas Villanueva, Jr., a lecturer of ethnic studies at the University of Colorado, where he also serves as director of the Critical Sports Studies program. We're going to talk about his new book, The Lynching of Mexicans in the Texas Borderlands, which came out with the University of New Mexico Press in 2017. Nick, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Glad to be here. So first, why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and about your background. What got you interested in history and ethnic studies, and what led you to the University of Colorado?
0: Okay, well, um, initially I uh, I studied business in college and uh, went into sales, and as I traveled around the country, I found myself examining people, studying people, studying the history of locations, and just found that... uh, that was something that was a passion for me and really decided that graduate school uh, with a focus in history was uh, was the best thing for me. So uh, so I went ahead and, uh, you know, uh, earned a, a bachelor's degree in, in history because I wasn't really going to get into a, a great Ph.D. program not having much of a history background and uh, then ended up at Vanderbilt University uh, where I earned my master's and my Ph.D. Uh, And that's uh, really how I got uh, interested in in history. Uh, As far as my topic, uh, do you want to know how I got into maybe more of the topic, or is that one of your next questions? That
1: was, in fact, my next question. So go ahead and tell us what led you to this topic in particular.
0: Well, I wanted to examine um, uh, relations between uh, white Americans and – People of uh, well Latino Latino Latinos, but specifically uh, I focus on people of Mexican descent. And um, I, uh, I I grew up in, a, in Northwest Indiana. I was actually born in Gary, Indiana. And if you know Gary, Indiana, it's a lot of it's a high poverty rate, and uh, there's there's definitely a division between uh, Latinos and uh, African Americans in uh, what's really I ar- I argue with my father and say just fighting for the same low paying jobs, uh, as the economy started to tank with the steel factories closing, uh, relations between the two groups, um, uh, really soured. And, um, and, and I, I just thought it was fascinating, fascinating to study two groups that, um, are marginalized by largely, you know, uh, the dominant group in society, uh, white Christian, heterosexual, male, and, uh, and, and and could not understand why the two groups would have their own uh, tension when they're um, really uh, at odds with many others in the dominant group in society. And so I, I thought I was going to do a comparative study that way in the Gary, Indiana region. And I read a book that uh, there was a chapter uh, where uh, it, it was a legal history of Texas. And there was a paragraph actually that where the author stated, uh, Leon Martinez Jr. may have been the youngest uh, person executed legally in the state of Texas. And I thought, well, I wonder if he was. And then the more I looked into Leon Martinez Jr., I learned that he was executed. He was under the age of legal execution. He admitted to a crime that he most likely did not commit After a lynch mob sought after him. So then I started looking into this idea of lynching. And so I thought, well, there's my comparative study, lynching of African Americans versus the lynching of um, Mexicans in the Texas borderlands at the time. And it really turned into just a focus on the lynching of Mexicans in the Texas borderlands.
1: Well, why don't we dive into the book then by having you set the scene a little bit. When you say the Texas borderlands, where do you mean exactly, and what is the history of this place prior to the early 20th century?
0: Okay, well, the Texas borderlands, uh, in the book where I'm focusing, I focus largely on West Texas, but um, South Texas as well is is part of the book, but um, I'm looking at the borderland as uh, more of a shared space. Uh, especially with the the, the fighting along the border, um, the raids from ranch raids of of uh, uh, American-owned ranches by Mexican um, revolutionaries to American uh, cavalrymen crossing over the border into Mexico and creating their own havoc there. So um, rather than a line, I have this sort of um, shared space uh, that is the borderland.
1: So tell us a bit about some of the people living in that shared space. For instance, you talk quite a bit about the Mormon population living in northern Mexico at the end of the 19th century. And in particular, there was one pretty well-known surname that pops up in your section about these Mormon settlements that, that might be worth talking a little bit about.
0: Oh, sure. Uh, the, uh, the well-known uh, family that you might be mentioning, the Romney family. Um, interestingly, I was doing the research for this book in 2012. Um, I, of course, wanted to learn more about Mormon colonies in Mexico because they, they became refugees as the revolution erupts. They become a target of threats and flee back to the United States. And all of a sudden, they're more welcomed into the United States once again versus maybe some of the lower class Mexicans. Uh, So a group that was once seen as culturally inferior because of their their uh, marital practices and their uh, religious belief now has been welcomed back into the American family because of their whiteness. Uh, And when I went to study this at uh, Brigham, Brigham Young University and the University of Utah, there was a moratorium on anything Romney that year. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I had to do a lot of work convincing archivists that uh, this has nothing to do with the election. <laughs> this was for a graduate student working on a dissertation, so um, it was it was a challenge I did not think I would, uh, I, would I expected to meet when uh, doing research.
1: Yeah, not a challenge that I think too many of of us historians have come across, but but an interesting one nonetheless. So you describe these uh, Mormon colonies, Mormon settlements in Mexico, but at the same time, you also have many Mexicans living further north in Texas as well prior to the Mexican Revolution, which we'll get into in a second. Can you tell us a bit about them and their experience living in the United States at the end of the 19th and very beginning of the 20th centuries?
0: Yes. Uh, in the, in the early part of the book, I believe, I, I think it's footnoted. I have to, uh, to, I have to discuss the language that I'm using because there are Mexicans who have been in the, what is now the state of Texas for decades. And, and, and pro- all the way back to, uh, maybe a century or so where some families, uh, lived in what was Tejas and, you know, Northern Mexico. Um, so many of these, uh, individuals will refer to themselves as Tejanos, uh, and that's, that in and of itself is its own identity. Uh, and then you have Mexican-Americans who, uh, and I use that term because these are individuals who um, have really assimilated into uh, white culture and, uh, a- and embraced the idea of this hyphenated Mexican and American identity. Um, and then you have individuals that I am referring to. Sorry, my phone just rang.
1: Okay.
0: I to turn that off. I apologize.
1: That's okay. It's happened to me be before too, so don't worry about it. <laughs> the um, you have
0: uh, it, uh, because this is you know, I'm researching something that's over 100 years old at this point. Um, migrant, r- migrant Mexicans who are. Living in in Texas temporarily, seasonally, maybe not necessarily ever wanting to remain in the United States, and so I I use the phrase pre- people of, of Mexican descent if I really don't know their their nationhood or national identity. So and there's families. Right. Sorry, and, and the the Mexican Americans are largely. Um, becoming more accepted prior to the Mexican Revolution, so before 1910, accepted in this society uh, when there's um, a, a family uh, cohesion and you have neighborhoods in El Paso that uh, have wealthier Spanish elite Mexicans that uh, really start to move into some of the um, older, wealthier neighborhoods in, in um, El Paso that are now uh, well, wealthy Anglos are moving into maybe the newer um suburban areas uh and thus there's still an acceptance of of the those who identify as more spanish European because of once again whiteness and um affluence
1: so Really, prior to the beginning of the 20th century, you paint a picture of a relatively fluid and porous border region. But as you've alluded to before, the Mexican Revolution really changes that dynamic. So can you describe the Mexican Revolution a bit and what changes in 1909 and 1910 in the Texas borderlands?
0: Sure, um, and I don't want to make it sound as though there's, the, the borderland was a utopia before that. But I mean, there were certainly uh, you know ethnic tensions at times. But it, there, but you're right. The word fluid would be the best way to describe it. That there was this um, this sharing of both sides and uh, economically and socially as well. So, uh, but you um, by 1909, 1909 and 1910, the tension of the Mexican Revolution. Um, it really brings on. I, I would say it would. It began very much anti-foreigner, and that foreigner is largely the U.S., U.S. investors, um, the U.S. government, uh, and of course the, the the head of the the Mexican government, uh, Diaz. And so um, when you begin to see these riots in Mexico, claiming Mexico back for Mexicans, um, out ousting, quote, the gringos, uh, this is then uh, spread throughout the, uh, the U.S. press, not just the Texas press, and you begin to um, see a tension that's created that has, uh, as many Americans would have said, was brought on by uh, the Mexicans. But um, the violence, the physical violence, is actually initiated by Anglo-Texans. Uh, because of the sphere of the revolutionaries, um, it, it's a civil war, but you know, unlike a civil war of north and south for us, it's a civil war um, where you have factions of revolutionaries all trying to claim power uh, and trying to, to claim leadership of, of, of the federal government. And then you have a federal government that's trying to conscript, conscript uh, average poor Mexican men into service. Uh, And so many of them are fleeing and uh, fleeing the revolution. I think I have a quote in the book where um, uh, one of the governor of Texas stated that the problem with the refugees from Mexico is that the best and the strongest are fighting in the uh, revolution. The most trustworthy are the ones that were already here. So the ones that are coming now are going to be like a public charge, they're going to be poor and um, not contributing to society.
1: So as you described, the Mexican Revolution in 1910 marks the beginning of a period of really pretty extreme violence within the Texas borderlands. And throughout the book, you describe a number of specific cases that are worth examining here a bit on the podcast. So can let's start by having you maybe tell us a bit about the cases of Antonio Rodriguez and Antonio Gomez.
0: Okay, and um, Antonio Rodriguez... Uh, very little is known about him in life but in death he became um a, a huge uh sort of uh catalyst to the to the uh er, to uh, the tension that existed in Mexico as a result of his lynching by uh anglo-americans he uh was believed to be possibly a, a, a drifter a migrant worker but um not necessarily uh in one um uh, farm or another uh, for for any lengthy period of time. So very little is known about him. But uh, there's the um, the accusation that he uh, killed a well known rancher's wife and uh, Miss Henderson, and uh, the posse of of men uh, sought after him, uh, lynched him brutally, and uh, burned him alive. Now uh, that case then. Uh, was spread throughout Mexico that uh, a Mexican was lynched uh, in his hometown of, I believe, Guadalajara. And from there, uh, the riots broke out around uh, throughout uh, Mexico, largely in universities uh, around uh, Mexico, uh, arguing that uh, they needed to revenge, uh, they wanted to avenge the death of, Antonio Rodriguez. This just happens to be two weeks before the outbreak of the Mexican revolution sort of officially. And uh, so some people like to tie the two together. I say that they're unrelated in the sense that, uh, you know, it didn't lead to the Mexican revolution, but it is tied together in respect with uh, anti U um, S uh, rhetoric and, and, and publications and, and riots throughout Mexico. Um, so he, 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 he represents uh, the, I would say, one of the first well-documented lynchings in the 20th century. Uh, as uh, as lynchings of Mexicans had declined uh, post Guadalupe Hidalgo, there was a, a, a many um, um, deaths uh, largely over property disputes and, and such. And then by two, by 19, by 1900, uh, the the lynchings had um, all but, almost ceased. So you have this one really begin this um, explosion of violence once again. Now, uh, just uh, a few months later, you have in Thorndale, Texas, a young man, a boy, really, by the name of Antonio Gomez. He uh, was whittling wood outside of a saloon. And uh, again, stories uh, by various people have changed in what actually happened, but uh what appears to have happened is one of the men physically assaulted him and he stabbed the man in his chest actually striking possibly his artery or his or, or his heart because the man died there in the street uh the boy uh, led to um, the local sheriff because the men were going to lynch him that night well they broke into where he was being held they did Uh, apprehend the boy and they hanged him from a telegraph pole Uh, interesting this was a very German American town and and one of the last words heard that night was uh, this young man will never uh, will never hurt another uh, German again so identity and ethnic identity uh, seems to be very important still at this time in this region while at the same time becoming white American. And no one really questioned Germans as white Americans, uh, even though they had towns that were still largely German speaking in schools. Uh, but for Mexicans, uh, that was something that, uh, was not accepted. They would segregate young Mexican children from Anglo American children if they didn't speak English, uh, and, uh, set them, send them to separate schools beginning a, a system similar to Jim Crow of segregating of the races.
1: The story of Leon Martinez Jr., however, is a little bit different, though certainly no less violent than the, the the stories of the other two lynchings that you just mentioned. Can you tell us a bit about him and what his story says about the region and its people during the 19 teens? Yes,
0: uh, his story um, and parts of it I can. I might draw back on um, Antonio Gomez just for a moment, but first with with um, Leon Martinez Jr. His story is one that really fascinated me because he, um, he, he was able to escape a lynching, uh, the suspected murder of a young woman in school teacher, Emma Brown. And he escaped the lynching by going to once again, the sheriff and the sheriff quite honestly asked him to admit to the crime or he was free to go. Well, the lynch mob was waiting outside for him. So he admits to a crime within five days. And this is a sum, in the summer where they had the the um, courts were, were closed. They're in recess. They rushed a trial, brought in a judge from a neighboring uh, town, um, and by Thursday set up the trial and by Friday had his conviction. Now, as a historian, there's always those moments where you have that, aha, I found this document that, you know, just makes you – um, just it, it, it will practically tell the story itself. Written, to be honest with you, I found where this boy's case um, went all the way up to the Texas State Supreme Court because um, there were, it, there were six members on, in his of his jury that were part of the lynch mob that tried to apprehend him the night of the alleged crime. So uh, there is one uh, state supreme court judge. That uh, as they tried to get this court case overturned, um, it it was upheld. But he was the dissenting judge. He wrote a 72-page dissenting opinion. That was a document that really told me a lot. It told me that yet his his age, his birth certificate had been brought by his family in Mexico. But when you have uh, an appeal, you can't introduce new evidence to, to the appeal to the case. You can only review the the case that and the evidence that was you know presented at trial so while everyone is publishing his birth certificate and papers and saying that this young man is under the age of legal execution he was still executed um, the two cases were uh were gomez and and, and uh and martinez were, were similar because these were both children these were both boys but in the eyes of anglo-texans the because of the mexican revolution you had boys fighting in the revolution. They were dehumanized. They all of a sudden had become these monsters. They were men, and they were dangerous men. Um, and Gomez's trial uh, – or Gomez, uh, the, um, the boy that was murdered in Thorndale, um, four members of the mob were actually arrested and went to trial. All were acquitted. Um, And interesting questions that were asked to the jury. Uh, The the jury was asked the question, do you think a Mexican deserves the same punishment as a white man? And uh, just to have those questions revealed in this book, I think, tells us a lot about the criminal justice system at the time and what really the plight was for these uh, young Mexican men and in some cases, Mexican women.
1: In the book's fourth chapter, you describe how the Mexican Revolution combined with um, American prejudices to create an environment of violence across really the entire region, from the Big Bend all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, really. Um, And much of this violence took place in so-called ranch raids. Can you tell us about raiding, and in particular, the concept of banditry, both during this period and more broadly in popular culture?
0: sure and the the banditry uh and and, and it's, i use that word because it was used at the time um you know there's you can use the word banditry and go back into theories on social banditry and social bandits and and so i'm using it is a a term that was really coined by the um the press at the time to criminalize um Mexicans who came across the border uh seeking seeking a place to live, seeking a ranch to work, and at times theft happened now there were some ranch raids that were um, violent by revolutionaries uh, and it, it It appeared as though there was, at this point, a retaliation. There'd be a ranch raid, and then there'd be a response. If if there was a Mexican ranch or Mexicans raiding a ranch, there'd be an Anglo response, and um, it it became this um, this war, really, uh, that happened along the border. Some some historians have actually referred to it as the the um, the bandit wars, and uh, I um, I hesitate to call it that because um, at times. They were lynch mobs and they were seeking out individuals who they were or groups of men that they were going to hang or shoot in a firing squad. And so for my research, I'm trying to pull out who were the victims of lynching, of mob violence, of when a group comes together and retaliates for um, an alleged crime or an actual event that occurred. And and so that's uh, that's what happens with these ranch raids, it leads to more mob violence, um, culminating to the El Porvenir massacre that I, I have in that chapter, which um uh men were taken out, men and boys were taken out in the middle of the night from their from their um village of El Porvenir. Only two weapons were found, I believe, and one was an antique Winchester. So uh but the the mob of men had been convinced that these uh these men from El Porvenir were um responsible for a previous raid on Christmas Eve and they executed them in the middle of the night there is a, a I believe a documentary being made that's coming out um this upcoming this year i believe on uh on the El Porvenir massacre.
1: And one of the processes that you describe is how this kind of cycle of reciprocal violence across the borderland region turns people who might not have otherwise been violent into violent, I think as you call them, revenge seekers almost. How does that happen? Why is that the case?
0: Um, The media, the press at the time, I I hold responsible for that, but it's also very much a top-down, not unlike the criminalization of – of uh, people of Mexican descent or Latinos today, by uh, well during the presidential uh, campaign, by um, Donald Trump saying such things as murderers and rapists. Well, you had um, the governor, Governor Ferguson of Texas, uh, create this loyalty proclamation where he reads this proclamation and has it published in both the English-speaking and Spanish-speaking presses that were, that basically threatened anyone of Mexican descent. Who did not, uh, who would not um, pledge allegiance to the stars and stripes, and carry this this uh, pledge around with them, uh, the, this paperwork, whether it be from the newspaper. So when you have a governor, a person of power in that state, saying that these people could possibly be criminals, and then at the end of his proclamation, even suggest that harm might come of them, come to them if. They don't, um, you know, acquiesce, and that's a threat. That, that's a threat of mob violence, and that's empowering someone who maybe always held a negative belief towards someone of that group, and now they have this power. This they're empowered because the leader of their state is saying, yes, this is a threat, and you need to protect the state. So it's not a surprise that by that in 2000, or I'm sorry, in 1990. Um, sorry, in 1900, the uh, Texas uh, um, Texas Rangers force was somewhere around six to twelve individuals, and it was over 1,200 by the year 1910. I mean, these are men just like in a movie, a John Wayne movie, The Searchers, where they just you know sign up, hold their hand up, and you're. Good. You just said your oath. You're now a member of the Texas Ranger. It was very much in that sort of uh, same dialogue that uh, you had people uh, aligned with law enforcement. And so these posses were including legal law enforcement individuals plus uh, civilians.
1: Right. I wanted to ask you about the role of the Texas Rangers in particular, because the the kind of culture of violence and raiding that you describe in the Texas Borderlands during this very bloody decade, it ranges from individual actions to relatively unorganized mob violence, all the way up to to organizations like the Texas Rangers and even the National Guard. So can you talk a bit about those latter two groups and the roles that they played, both in exasperating and sometimes in quelling the violence that's going on during this decade?
0: Sure. The the Texas Rangers had had a long history of violence with um, with Mexicans, Um, the uh, stereotypes and suspicions on both sides that uh, that, um, you know, there were dead, uh, several dead Mexican men found. uh, You would also find, um, you know, rusty old uh, weapons left near their bodies so that it would appear as though, oh, well, they were they were shot by the Rangers because they. There were a threat. But um, but, but during this decade, the the Texas Rangers uh, become the police force, if you will, the Border Patrol, um, because there's a there's a there's a tension between uh, governors of uh, both governors, Governor Ferguson and his predecessor, uh, Colquitt, tension between the, the governor of Texas with the president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson and William Jennings Bryan. And uh, who's going to police the border? Is it a Texas problem or is it a federal problem? And and so uh, that is why you begin to see this this uh, rise in um, law enforcement of the Texas Rangers. And their main goal was to police the border, was to identify uh, dangerous Mexicans. Uh, And so so there's already this culture of hatred that is now legally sanctioned as law enforcement officials. Um, Now, the um, the role of the National Guard and the troops that come in by 19 by by 1916, 1917, uh, the troops that were called up for the border, in my opinion, and I don't really write this as into the book because it is just an opinion. Uh, um, I, I, think it had a lot to do with, uh, the buildup or pre- preparation for possibly entering world war one and others have speculated about that as well. Uh, so these men were, were training. Um, they, they, they were ill trained. They were coming from all parts of the, uh, the, the country really. And, um, they, uh, they were almost a joke, in my opinion, as far as um, how they were uh, organized and what they were doing, and and really they saw very little um, violence along the border. Um, I wrote about Jody P. Harris, a, a National Guardsman who wrote a satire newspaper about his six months along the border, and he was very critical of the federal go- US federal government and of the press Uh, Blaming the press for creating these bandit problems that, in his six months, didn't exist while he was along the border.
1: Those newspapers by Harris, as well as a lot of the correspondence by, I believe his his name is Private Batchelder. That's those are those are some great documents in there, and a lot of the newspapers that you're talking about are reprinted in the book as well. You must have been thrilled to come across those in the archive.
0: Oh yeah, those are that was at the uh, the archive of the Big Bend. Everyone loves to go to el paso or to austin texas of course Austin for music and the food but uh, uh i was in alpine texas Sol Ross state university archive of the big bend and these documents uh i mean i, I have i printed them out and i use them in my classes they're they're like uh legal size pages and handwritten stories uh cartoons uh, of the events, but really telling, um, e- telling a lot about what uh, these guardsmen experienced. I mean, the, the only Mexicans they encountered were the boys that they decided to play baseball with.
1: <laughs> right. So you alluded to this a second ago, but American entry into World War I coincides with a marked decrease in lynchings and other violence across the Texas borderlands. What's the relationship there? This is kind of one of the core arguments of your book, and it's a really compelling one, I thought
0: sure the um well one thing that's happening is uh there are people of mexican descent and mexican americans that um have have been experienced uh experiencing so many problems in texas at the time violence uh discrimination and now concern that they too might be conscripted to service serving the united states a country that they don't feel represents them uh respects them or gives them the rights of citizenship and citizenship is a very important part of this argument that i make in the book Uh, so some of them are fleeing back into mexico Um, you also have uh, some mexican americans enlisting saying this is going to be my way to be included into the American family to to show my 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 uh, patriotism and and fight for this country, and then you also have this threat that possibly uh, there are German spies. It's in in the Texas borderlands because of you know the Zimmerman te- telegram stating that you know Mexico can. Germany will help Mexico reclaim lost land if, if Mexico can, you know, somehow create this problem for uh, the United States and, and prevent the U.S. from entering World War II or World War One, sorry. And uh, and so there's there's a suspicion that now is created about Germans and German Americans. Uh, and South Texas has a, a large German population, so um, this idea of citizenship and uh, identity becomes very important um, when when the lynchings occurred earlier prior to this you know this final chapter in the final couple of years of the of the 19 teens uh, oftentimes uh, the the reason why there wasn't much of a response by mex uh, by anyone other than family members for the deaths of these young men uh was because they weren't american citizens so you could not you didn't have the us government really intervening and mexico was in turmoil so you didn't have a stable government you know demanding reparations and and and, and investigations to this uh, at one point uh, the the lynchings were so bad that uh, an ambassador from spain spoke on behalf of one of the the young men saying you know just feeling it was maybe this ethnic heritage duty to to try and intervene because no one was trying to fight for these young men. So yeah, the, the lynchings decrease and uh, the attention sort, sort of focuses on a new enemy other.
1: And finally, you end the book by describing how a Mexican-American civil rights movement emerges from the violence and the lynchings of Mexicans in the United States. Can you tell us about how one led to the other?
0: Yes, um, and I'm actually, we're, that's uh, the second book that I'm working on to follow, to follow up with this. Uh, but you have um, many of the servicemen that are returning from uh, World War I are returning to a, a state of Texas where their children, their unborn children, or the children they're going to have someday, are not allowed to go to uh, white schools. In a town like San Angelo, Texas, you had a, an all-white school, an all-black school, an all-Mexican school. Um, And uh, so you you see this this growing segregation occurring, and you have also a um, uh, segregation of certain spaces like parks and and public uh, uh, swimming pool facilities. So um, these soldiers that return are now starting to form these fraternal groups or these uh, social groups that are trying to – Fight for these for civil rights, and this by 1927, uh, I believe you have these various different groups come together and form LULAC, the League of United Latin American Citizens. Um, and uh, and LULAC, though, and this is where I'm in my next book that I'm working on. I'm struggling with this because there's a tension here. Um, they're adopting such things as uh, they say the George Washington Prayer at the beginning of uh, their meetings. Uh, it's very uh, hyper patriotic to the United States with an elimination of some of their, you know, September uh, Mexican independence celebrations in favor more of uh, Fourth of July. So there's there's an assimilation or some of the Mexicans that disagreed with this type of, uh, of activity uh, selling out, if you will, of who is Mexican, who is not Mexican. And you begin to see a division um, uh, distancing, if you will, uh, someone who is identifies as Mexican-American, maybe has been here for several years, a couple of uh, generations, will now want to distance themselves from newly arriving migrants. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, David Gutierrez wrote about that uh, decades ago um, uh, in his book Walls and Mirrors.
1: Well, this is an excellent book and a very important one, if I do say so, uh, given our current political moment. Um and now that it's complete, I usually like to wrap up the podcast by asking what the author is working on next. And you've given us a bit of a preview of what your next project will be. But what is the the sort of elevator pitch for your next book? Can you give us a, a little bit more of a preview of that? Yeah,
0: the elevator pitch, I guess you, I would say, is um, it, it's titled Unmaking Citizens. And uh, the un is in parentheses because it's making and unmaking. Um, it's... Uh, the uh, idea of um, assimilation uh, into American society uh, and the division of those who are maintaining their, um, their Mexican identity. Uh, and so it's really about this, this division that exists. Um, but m- more specifically, uh, I'm interested in the fact that during this decade, lynchings decline quite dramatically. And uh, is it because they're seen uh, Mexicans are being seen as American citizens, the ones that are assimilating and and, and, and celebrating the Fourth of july and and being hyper patriotic, or is there something else there and um And what I found is there are lynchings that are attempted, but they're not successful so um, so there's still this brutality there, but the fact that they're unsuccessful. There's, there are groups and organizations that uh, are coming to the aid of, uh, of these, uh, these mobs that are forming, uh, preventing them from successfully apprehending someone, uh, and also legally, uh, the, the legal, there's, um, you have a Mexican federal government who is now putting pressure on the United States to protect foreign nationals in, the, in this country.
1: Well, when it's done, we will have you back on the podcast. Look forward to it. (laughs) Great. Thank you. Nicholas Villanueva Jr. is a lecturer in ethnic studies at the University of Colorado Boulder and is the director of their critical sports studies program. His new book is The Lynching of Mexicans in the Texas Borderlands, which came out with the University of New Mexico Press in 2017. Nick, thank you so much for talking to us today.
0: Thank you. If I just could say one more thing. Of course. Of course. Uh, The the book – Thankfully, or happily, was uh, successful and uh, enough that the uh, department has uh, promoted me to assistant professor now.
1: Oh, that's great news. Uh, well, congratulations no on <laughs> that. Great. Congratulations, Nick. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks again.